trees went out to name themselves the king. This is Grace Talks, a production of Martin UMC, an open and inviting United Methodist Church in Martin, Michigan, a co-charge with Shelbyville United Methodist Church, which worships on Sunday at 11 a.m. Martin worships Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and we would love to see you there. But the olive tree said, should I stop making all that I know as human beings? Our scripture text today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. And Mary sang, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things to me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. According to the promise he has made to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, God, our Lord, our Savior, our Emmanuel. So Ellen and I are doing something right now. We're re-watching some of my favorite movies, The Lord of the Rings. The other night, we were working through the second film, 2002's The Two Towers, and the movie, for those of you who don't know or need a little refresher, follows this band of characters, the Fellowship, after they separate in the previous movie. And through the course of the movie, three concurrent stories work their way towards the end of the narrative, and I can't help but describe the story as Advent-like in its scope, as it's to- it speaks about this Advent theme of hope in the face of utter ruin. Hope in the face of defeat and impossible odds. The movie, and more so the books written by J.R.R. Tolkien, speak to me in ways that have come to utterly shape me as a person. However, The Lord of the Rings presents a clear black-and-white view of good and evil. The film, like the books, carries with it this imagery that could be easily co-opted by those who seek to dehumanize others. The story presents the good races as being people of beauty, of complexity, of morality, and yet it portrays the villains as twisted and corrupted, as being utterly beyond redemption. Now, if one were to attempt to read or watch this as a one-to-one analogy for the world we live in, as was often the case considering the movie came out a year after 9-11. One could easily come to the conclusion that the elves, the men, the dwarves, the ents, the wizards are good old-fashioned Americans, and the trolls, the orcs, the armies of the East, well, they're whoever are our enemies at the time. 
The story then carries a number of blind spots in its black and white morality, things that, honestly, Tolkien, with his deeply complex and moral understanding of the world, never intended. He didn't write his stories because he was malicious. He didn't write them because he was intentionally working to offer imagery that could be so easily co-opted. Rather, they arise out of some sense of privilege. As a man of means living in England, these books came out of his lived experience. I'm going to ask for some audience participation this morning. I know you love it when I do that. I want you to do one of two things. I want you to look at your neighbor or neighbors, whoever's sitting closest to you, and I want you, as quick as you can, to name your top five authors or if you can't do that, name five authors you can think of off the top of your head. I'm going to give us about 30 seconds. So don't think too hard, just boom, boom, boom. Ready? Ready? Go. You at home should play along as well, and for that reason, I'm leaving the silence in. Okay, bringing it back, bringing it back. <laughs> Here's the audience participation part. And this is where I want a show of hands, okay? How many of you who played along uh, included a woman or person of color on your list? One or more. Okay, two? Two women or people of color? Three? Okay. <laughs> I, was, I had a prize if anyone had all five, but <laughs> here we are. So why did I take us through this exercise on the third week of Advent? Well, I do it today because our passage is the Song of Mary, or as it is historically and traditionally called in the Christian tradition, the Magnificat. This song of Mary found in Luke is one of those few works in the whole scope of the Bible that is attributed to a woman. It is a song that proves that Mark Lowry wasn't listening when he wrote his 2001 classic and world-famous Mary Did You Know, because if he was listening, the answer would have clearly been, yeah, she did. <laughs> I asked the initial question, because the thing we always have to remember when we deal with Mary, when we come to this song especially, is that Mary, like nearly every single author of the Bible, is a marginalized person of color. With Mary especially, we also have to remember that not only is she a marginalized person of color, someone on the edge of society, she's also a woman. The Bible, almost without exception in its construction, is made up of 66 books which were written, compiled, edited, re-edited, and canonized by marginalized people of color. And even within that narrative, which spans the writing of 2,000 years from beginning to end, the voice of women is rare. 
which is likely why the imagery that Mary offers in this passage is, show, is so earth-shaking and transformative because it is not the people in power who are doing the talking. Mary's imagery in her song, words that have survived thousands of years and yet which come from a woman who was little more than a slave living in the Judean countryside, is the truest definition of a transformed and inverted world. In Mary's own words, the powerful are cast down, the low are lifted up, the poor are filled with good things, and the rich are sent away empty. These are images that those in power will never seek out. Regardless of who wins, who be, regardless of who becomes president next year, the images that we find in Mary's song will never be lived out. Mary's song is an image of hope in hopeless times. Like the theme of the two towers, it carries with it this advent understanding of hope in the face of impossible odds. Mary was a woman who was, for all intents and purposes, sold to a husband she probably didn't know, living in a land that was occupied by a foreign power governed by a puppet king who had so little regard for the people that he ruled over that he could order his soldiers to slaughter the children of an entire city and no one in power batted an eye. Mary was a woman in one of the worst times one could be a woman, and yet she sings of hope. Her song, her hope, though, is not without teeth. She sings a song of hope, and yet she sings a song of hope that comes at the expense of those in power. We can celebrate her song, but when the lowly are being lifted up and the powerful are being torn down, that means someone is made uncomfortable. As with the prophets throughout the Hebrew Scriptures and into the New Testament, what we find is that the promise of the kingdom of God, what we call the gospel, is one that comforts the disturbed and disturbs the comfortable. Time and time again, the gospel promises that the low will be raised and the rich and powerful brought down. It's hope from the bottom up. And really, maybe that's the only place that hope can actually come from, because hope, when seen through the lens of privilege, through the lens of wealth and power, can never really address the deepest wells of pain and suffering and oppression. It can't help but neglect the marginalized, not because it's cruel, not because it's vindictive or spiteful or hateful or evil. It does it because of blissful and perhaps even benevolent ignorance. like the thousands of tons of toys delivered to kids in the wake of a hurricane or a tsunami or some other natural disaster, it attempts to alleviate the cries of the suffering without listening to what it is those who suffer are actually asking for. The message of the gospel is one that offers us a new way of life, a new way of understanding the world. It offers us a new identity in Christ, a new narrative, a new way of being. And what is key 
what is central is recognizing that this God spoken of is first and foremost the God of the oppressed. God, as spoken of it throughout the whole of the scripture, is a God of the marginalized who not only includes them, but identifies as one of them. Christ coming from Mary would have been raised on just the sort of message that Mary sings of in this song. A mother with broad dreams of a transformed world, with broad hopes of a renewed future for her children. We might even go so far as to imagine Christ sitting on his mother's knee as a young tot, listening to the lullaby that is rebellious in nature. Lullabies of transformation and hope in a world where hope is hard to come by. The gospel, as with all grassroots social movements, begins and began with the marginalized. The gospel comes from and is initially for the oppressed. It's a message directed towards the rich and powerful, a message telling us, even, to change. The nature of the world, the way the world works, is one where the poor and the marginalized seem to inevitably rise up against oppressive power systems, and often this ends up being violent. What makes the gospel so different is that it claims that even the rich, even the powerful, even the oppressors, even the tyrant on his throne is included in the new world, are made in the image of God. The kingdom of God is one that is universal, but it requires change. It requires transformation. It requires a new way of life. Think of it this way. If the rich of the world, if the powerful saw the powerless and the poor as brother and sister and gave as they would give to one of their own, gave as they would give to their own flesh and blood, gave as they would give to themselves, then there would be no rich or poor. No one would be in need. And this is what the kingdom points us towards. We don't get a bigger mansion. We're all the same. This is the way of the kingdom. A kingdom, a world where there are no rich or poor, where there are no divisions between slave or free, black or white, foreigner or national. a world where we're all one in Christ Jesus, a world of Christ's salvation. Now, normally that would be where I would end, but I'm going to add a postscript today. I'm going to offer a challenge in the coming year, and I'm including myself in this challenge. If you read, if you're a reader, if you read often, read more books from the marginalized. 
who we, read who we read determines how we think, and if we want a clearer understanding of the world, of how we are seen in it, of how others live in it, of how the Holy Spirit moves and lives and works in it, then we have to be intentional in seeking out voices that we may never hear. And so may we seek to find those voices. May we stare into the margins of society and listen for the lullabies of the Marys who sing songs of transformation, hope, and renewal. Who sing songs of Christ, the traveler unknown.